Well, go ahead and have a seat, because if you haven't noticed, it's a bit of a long text this morning, and unlike previous weeks when I abbreviated some of the reading because the repetition, I'm going to read everything this morning, there isn't the repetition, and there's just a lot of good in this. Now, why are we taking such a big chunk? I think I've already hinted at this. Um, We're working our way through Genesis, and we have been, and no one has come up to me and said, when are we going to be done? I've been waiting for that because I myself have thought, when are we going to be done? Uh, But we're going to be finished before you know it, and that's part of the reason for taking slightly bigger chunks. I wanted to finish before Advent, and that's when we'll be done, Lord willing, uh, as we'll finish just in time for Advent, uh, the end of, of Genesis. This particular section that we're looking at today is still part of a larger narrative. We're still taking these, this, it's a really, Joseph's narrative is really long. So we're still, we're not breaking the story up. We're still taking a chunk uh, of it, or we're not looking at the whole, whole narrative, rather. And so this is a, a part of this larger story, which we've already begun, and we're picking up now in the time of famine. So look with me, if you will, in chapter 42. In verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was the governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is because of the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. But this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there's truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they said, and they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back here. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten their grain that they had brought, they had bought or brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to them, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with us. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever." If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go to the man. 
May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which he, which which was replaced in our, in our sacks the first time that they brought us here so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought, they, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that's an abomination to the Egyptians. And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. This is God's word to us. Thanks for hanging in there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. This incredible story of your faithful work in your people's lives. Would you take this, your word, and instruct our hearts and minds by it, that we would know as your people that your faithfulness is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as you have cared for and delivered your people in the past, so you will care for and deliver us. Give us hope to trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, knowledge is power. That's the title of the sermon, and that may seem like a strange sermon title, almost a secular sermon title. Um, I looked up the origin of the statement, and it's attributed mostly to Francis Bacon, uh, who was a philosopher. Some call him the father of empiricism, which would be fitting to such a phrase, knowledge is power. 
Uh, he lived around the same time as Shakespeare, and Shakespeare also included a f- similar phrase in one of his plays, Henry VI. So maybe it was just this contemporary idea of the time that knowledge is power. But as Solomon once said, there is nothing new under the sun. And so it's a little bit ironic then that we find in the book of Proverbs this verse. Proverbs 24.5, a man of knowledge enhances his might. Knowledge is power. Well, in the passage that's before us today, we witness Joseph's knowledge provide him a certain power over his brothers. He knows things that they don't know, just like we've already seen in Joseph's life. He knew the dreams. He knew the interpretation of the dreams, and that set him apart. It allowed him to be elevated into a position of power to provide this plan to save not only Egypt, but the surrounding world as well. If you think about it, when Joseph's brothers arrived, he recognizes them, they don't recognize him. He knows who they are, they don't know who he is. This gives them the upper hand, doesn't it? And later, when they discuss the predicament that they're in, and they lament, really, what they had done to Joseph, they have no idea it's Joseph standing in front of them. They're speaking in Hebrew to one another. He's been using a translator, speaking Egyptian to them. They don't know that he understands them. He hears and understands every word. He spoke Hebrew at least until he was 17. The next time they come back, it's the same story. He recognizes Benjamin. He knows who Benjamin is. They, including Benjamin, don't know who he is. And he wept. He was moved by emotion. And then at the end of the chapter, Joseph arranged for his brothers to be seated in the order of their birth. And they looked with amazement at one another. How did he know this? Even though Joseph's position in Egypt was one of elevated in power by the Pharaoh, it was really his knowledge that set him apart. It was how he got into that position, but it was also what kept him in that position and gave him this power over his brothers. And he used this not to exploit his brothers, but to gain further information. He wanted to know how his dad was. He wanted to know where Benjamin was. Were they still alive? Were they still well? He learned through this process that Reuben had actually prevented his death when he argued against his brothers who wanted to kill him. Ultimately, Joseph learned that his brothers were being transformed, that their lives and their hearts were being changed through their own experience of suffering. We've seen that transformation in Joseph's life, the kind of bratty little kid that was so brash and telling of his dreams and bragging about his coat to his brothers, transformed through the experience of suffering into the man that we see today, and now his brothers are walking that same road. Again, Joseph doesn't exploit his brothers, but rather sets up a series of tests, which I would argue, led by the Holy Spirit, serves to arrange this, what would become a reconciliation for his entire family. You see, Joseph has knowledge, and that knowledge is power, but Joseph isn't all-knowing. He's not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. If you remember, Joseph, in the past passage, named his firstborn son Manasseh, which he said meant, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And yet, in this passage, just a few years later, who was standing before him? Members of his father's house the very ones who brought that hardship back upon him. And so that memory comes back to him. Our all-knowing God was working through Joseph in the lives of his brothers, in the lives of those around him, even in this steward who is not, he's not even named in the passage. 
We can see God's work in his life to point these brothers to God. It's God who did this. We saw it already in the life of Pharaoh, right? This pagan king who said the Spirit of God is on this man. And God continues to work not only to save his people and others from this famine, but also to restore them to one another. That, that's, that's coming, right? We're going to see that soon. And ultimately moving forward his redemptive plan and promise. And so as chapter 42 opens, the famine is now in full swing. It's spread up into the land of Canaan. And Jacob, where he is with his 11 sons, is experiencing the harshness of this famine. And he, the scene opens with him asking his boys, why do you look at one another? We don't need much help in knowing what he's putting down here, right? Picking up what he's putting down. I was at the... I was at a store this past week. I had to have my tires rotated. And while I was, my tires were being rotated, I went to do some shopping for things that we needed. And when I finished, I came back and I got in line. And I didn't anticipate how long I was going to stand in line. But as I'm standing in line and the time goes on, you know what happens. You start getting a little agitated and you start looking around. Like, what's, you know, what's going on here? This one employee is really hustling. He's doing his job. He's the guy who helped me before, was really nice. He's continuing to work, trying to help people at the counter. But there are these two guys standing behind him with their arms folded, with their hands in their pockets, just standing around, in essence, looking at each other. Right? And after 25 minutes in line, when all I needed was someone just to hand me my keys so I could leave, the guy behind me says, who were those two guys? Because he was really mad. He said, who were those two guys? And he goes, oh, one was my supervisor and the other was my boss, which I'm not sure what that even means, you know, but there they stood the whole time while we waited. That's what was happening with Jacob's sons here. They were standing around looking at each other. And so he says that to him. Why are you standing around looking at each other? Go to Egypt. There's food there. There's grain there. Go and buy food. He has to kind of kick them in the pants to go. And he adds in verse 2 that we may live and not die. This is a matter of life or death. We have to have food. You see the seriousness of the famine. And so the ten brothers take off. They leave their father and Benjamin behind because it says in verse 4, Jacob feared that harm might happen to him. We see the favoritism that Jacob has already been showing, both Joseph and Benjamin, both sons of Rachel, his beloved wife. He's not going to allow what happened to Joseph to happen to Benjamin. He remembers Joseph. He doesn't want to experience the same grief, and so he keeps Benjamin behind. As the sons arrive in Egypt, verse 5 describes them as the sons of Israel for the first time. It's the first time in Scripture that we see that uh, description given for them. And it's this hint of this nation in seed form, the sons of Israel. This nation that is tiny, it's just this family at this point, but in a matter of time, once they settle in Egypt, would, would, would become a sizable nation. And upon their arrival, what's the first thing that they do? They come and they bow down before Joseph. Now, if we didn't remember what that's pointing to, the text kind of helps us a little bit because it says Joseph remembered his dreams. Now, this isn't the fulfillment because if you remember in his dreams, it was all 11 brothers. It was also his father and his wives that would bow down to him. So this is just, a, again, a hint at what is to come. But it says that Joseph remembered his dreams. He remembered what he had experienced. But he doesn't tell his brothers this. He keeps this knowledge to himself. They don't recognize him. 
He recognizes them. If you think about it, Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers sold him to the caravan of the Ishmaelites. Now he's at least 38. So he's probably older than that. I mean, if you think of 13 years, he was in prison before he was elevated. There's been seven years of plenty. Now we're into the famine. They've already run out of food. So it's at least been one year. That's how I said 38. It may have been, it may have been pushing 40. So what did you look like at 17 and what did you look like at 40? Some of you still pretty amazing, but if you're like me, you wouldn't recognize the two people and maybe Joseph fit in that category. And so he also was dressed as a ruler. He was clean shaven. He didn't look like a Hebrew with his beard. He also was speaking Egyptian, not Hebrew. He was using an interpreter, verse 23 points out. And so all of this combined served to keep his identity hidden from his brothers. Not only did Joseph treat his brothers as strangers, it says that he spoke harshly to them. He questions their motives. He accuses them of being spies to come and discover Egypt's weaknesses. This is not an outlandish suspicion. I mean, any country is going to be on guard against those who might come in and present a threat. But in particular, during a time of famine, they were, they were vulnerable. And not only were they vulnerable because of the famine, they were particularly vulnerable because they had storehouses. They had saved up all of this grain. And so wouldn't others from other places want to come in and take advantage of this? And so this wasn't this outlandish suspicion that Joseph suggested to his brothers. He is dogged in his accusations. You you pick this up as we read the narrative, right? He doubles down on them. No, 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 you're spies, you're spies, you're spies. And then he says, I'm going to give you a test. I'm going to send one of you back. The rest of you are going to stay here. One of you is going to go back and bring this brother you talk about. Because if you bring this brother back, then I'll know you're telling the truth and I'll let you all go. And he puts him in prison for three days. They're incarcerated. And the narrator doesn't tell us what's in Joseph's heart. Why did he do this? We could understand why Joseph wouldn't be so trusting. I mean, these are the guys. The last time he saw these guys, what were they doing to him? Well, first they wanted to kill him, and then they were talked out of that, and they threw him in the pit and then sold him to the, the caravan of Ishmaelites. I mean, of course he's not going to trust them. Of course there's going to be some, some strong feelings in Joseph's heart. We don't know, but whether it was a part of a wise plan or whether there was any kind of retribution in his intent, we get the sense that something changed. I would argue that Joseph had a change of heart. During these three days in prison, he realized this wasn't the best plan. The plan was still good in its basic form, but he needed to modify it a bit. And so when he calls them out of confinement, he says this to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. I think by his adding, I fear God, and here he uses the name Elohim and not Yahweh. He's not going to give away to his brothers yet that he knows God's covenant name. Um, I, I think there's an indication there in that I fear God that he had this change of heart. I think he was convicted that he was being harsh on his brothers. And so this is really a, an act of, uh, of graciousness toward not only his brothers, but toward his larger family, because enabling all but one to go back would enable them to take more grain back for the extended family. So this was an act of kindness. And then at this point, the story kind of pauses before the brothers leave, And they discuss this situation, this predicament that they're in. In verse 21 we read, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
of all the things over the past 20 plus years that his brothers could think about at this very moment, standing in front, not knowing, but standing there in front of Joseph, that that's what comes into their mind. That this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. Do you not see God's gracious work in their lives? To bring to mind the conviction of that sin. And as we go through the story, we see this transformation. But here is the sovereign God working to bring to their mind what they had done was wrong. Reuben adds that there comes a reckoning for his blood. They believe, they said Joseph is no more. This, this brother is no more. They believe he's dead and that his life is in their, was in their hands. They had no idea that Joseph understood Hebrew. He's standing before them and he hears every word that they say. And what does this do for Joseph? Well, one is it brings him back to the traumatic experience. Stirs up all the stuff that he said when Manasseh was born. I've forgotten my father's household. I've forgotten my hardships. Now it's all right back in his face. And so he turns and he weeps. He's moved by this emotionally. And even though Reuben, who was the oldest, who should have been the one to have stayed behind, Joseph learns in this time that Reuben actually tried to spare him. And so he selects Simeon instead and provides kind of an object lesson for his brothers. Has Simeon bound right in front of their eyes so that they could watch, so that they would remember, you need to come back and get your brother. And then he instructed that the payment for the grain be put back in their brother's sacks without their knowledge. He also gave them provisions for the journey. He's just lavishing, without their knowledge, lavishing uh, all this, these good things on them. And they return back to Canaan. And on the way back, one of the brothers, it doesn't say who, but he opened his sack to feed his donkeys and discovers his payment is in there. The money's there. And he tells his brothers and it says their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this? that God has done to us. Do you see the transformation that's going on? First, there's the conviction of sin. Now there's the recognition that God is doing this. It's the first time the brothers mention the name of God. We see that Yahweh has pricked their consciences and their guilt is now becoming remorse that is rooted in this healthy fear. What has God done to us? This is actually an act of grace by God. Godly fear is a gift of His grace to draw us to see who He is and who we are. Kent Hughes writes, Godly fear is a grace. Fear alone, like guilt alone, is of little use. In fact, it can be debilitating. But godly fear is a fear that God blesses, for He comes to those who fear Him. Good things were happening to those brothers. A godly fear is precisely what every child of God needs. Those who live with with Those who live with awed reverence find that God orders all their life to His glory and ultimately to His children's glory. You know, we sing in that famous hymn by John Newton, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." This is what the brothers were experiencing in this moment. And as they get back home, you can see them coming in. They've got all the grain. They're unpacking their bags. Their dad's asking them about the journey. They're telling them about the journey. It's interesting. They don't tell them all the details about the journey. They seem to be protecting their father a little bit. They leave out some of the more alarming elements. They don't tell him about the money. They don't tell him about their remorse for what they had done. Of course, they weren't going to tell him about that. They don't tell him about uh, Simeon being shackled. They don't tell him about their own imprisonment. They leave all that out. But as they begin telling them the parts that they do, and they're unpacking their bags, 
And they're telling him that they have to take Benjamin back with them to get more grain and to get Simeon and retrieve him. All of a sudden, they're opening their bags and there in every one of their sacks is the money. It's been returned to all of them. Now, Jacob may have believed their story so far, but at this point, all credibility is lost. See, this is another hint, and we talked about this when we were going through this part of the story, that Jacob may have doubted the brother's story about Joseph being attacked by a wild animal when they dipped his, his robe in goat's blood and made up that lie. That There's suggestions that, that Jacob doubted that. We've seen a couple of those. Here's another one. Because immediately, as soon as they open their sacks and they see the money and he sees the money, what is Jacob's response? He's not like, oh, wow, you know, we, we got a coupon, we got a deal. He laments, he cries, he blames them. For what? For the loss of Simeon? Not first. He blames him for the loss of Joseph. That's what he remembers. 20 plus years ago, when they opened their sacks and he sees the money, there's that hint. He knows they sold Joseph. He may not have all the evidence. He may not be able to prove it in a court of law, but the dad knows. And now he thinks they've done the same thing with Simeon. They made up another story. Simeon's really gone. They, they, they sold him too. The money's right there in their sacks. And so, no, he's not going to let Benjamin go. He's not going to lose another son. And he digs his heels in and he says, no way. And the story goes on. It doesn't tell us how much time passes, but I would guess months, if not years, go by because they ran out of all of their grain before they were ready to go back. Verse 40 or chapter 43 opens up reminding us again that the, uh, the famine was severe. And it wasn't until they got desperate that they ran out of the food that they had that Jacob decides, okay, it's time to go back to Egypt. We've got to get more food. And it's in verse 3 that we begin to see Judah emerge as a leader among his brothers. We've talked about Judah some, but this is, this is remarkable because Judah's not number one, the normal leader. He's not number two. He's not number three. Judah's number four. And so it's remarkable here that Judah begins to emerge. But we know Judah's line has a particular purpose. It's from the line of Judah that the Messiah would come. And so Judah begins to emerge here as the leader, and he explains to his father with great persistence, but he remains respectful that, hey, we can't go back, and we're not going to go back, because the man said, and you notice how Joseph's referred to as the man throughout this story. I kind of find that kind of humorous a little bit. He says, the man said, we're not going to be able to see his face if we don't come back with Benjamin. To see his face means that you're not going to find favor before him. Judah understood what he meant. You have to bring Benjamin back. And so finally, after this persistence, Jacob realizes it's how it has to be, and so he suggests taking these special gifts, take it as a sign to honor the man in Egypt. And so in verse 14 then, he sends them away with this statement of prayer and benediction over his sons. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your, your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He's praying to God Almighty. El Shaddai is the name that's used here. Some look at this and they see the frailty in Jacob's prayer and they kind of indict him for that. I think this is actually a very honest prayer. Jacob is in essence praying, God, you're powerful enough. He's praying El Shaddai, right? God Almighty, you're powerful enough to protect, to preserve, to provide. And that's what I'm praying for. Yet, not what I will, but your will be done. If I bereave of my children, I bereave of my children. 
Well, God is not afraid of honest prayers. We have only to go to the Psalms to see that, to see what it's like to pour our hearts out to God in honest prayer, to say both that which we fear and that which we're concerned about and that which we're struggling with, and yet to know that we're praying to God Almighty. Jacob longs for his, brother, or his sons to return safely to them. And not only is God going to answer that prayer, God is going to answer Jacob's prayer beyond what he can ask or imagine because God is going to reunite Jacob not only with his 11 sons, but with his 12 sons. He's going to reunite him with Joseph. The brothers come back to Egypt. Verse 16 tells us he sees, Joseph sees them. He recognizes Benjamin and he orders a feast to be prepared. And that's kind of remarkable. This is a time of famine. This is not a time of feasts. And so this kind of stood out. And then the brothers were instructed to go to his house and this stood out a little bit more. This causes them to become afraid. They think they're going to, that he's going to pounce on them, that he's going to accuse them of stealing the sacks, uh, the, 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 the grain sacks that had money in them. Or, you know, is he, are they going to, is he going to believe them about Benjamin? Is he going to believe that he's their brother? Is he going to accuse them? Is he going to take their donkeys and their other possessions from them? And so the brothers go to the steward of the house. And the steward sets their mind at ease. The steward is really this incredible character in the story. This character who pronounces, it's, it's almost words that we hear of our Savior when he's on the sea and he, he says, he says, peace, right? This is the kind, the, the statement to the brothers is almost echoing that kind of sentiment. It's just peace. To them, It's repeated two more times in verse 27. It's his way of saying everything is going to be okay. That God, your God, the God of of your, your God and your father's God, he points to Yahweh here, the God of your fathers, he has provided and protected. It's exactly what Jacob has prayed for. Exactly what he has prayed for his sons. For them to receive mercy. And that's exactly what God is giving to them. Mercy and peace. In this time of fear, Simeon's brought out. They're all reunited. And when Jacob or Joseph comes home, they're called into the house and he questions them about their father. He questions them about Benjamin. Um, they, they all at this point bow down again. It says at this point they're prostrate. They're literally laying on their stomachs before him, not knowing who he is still uh, pointing to the fulfillment of this dream. And Joseph absolutely loses it. He becomes emotional again. It says in verse 30, Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept there. And then he washed his face and came out. Joseph's weeping was not shedding of a tear. (laughs) Joseph didn't shed a tear. He wept. He had, to wa- he had to wash his face. This was extremely emotional. It says, in controlling himself, he said, serve the food. You get this sense that this was overwhelming to Joseph. The phrase that's translated here, that his compassion grew warm, is literally his compassion boiled over. And we see that combination, this phrase used only one other times, or one other time in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Kings 3.26. It's a story that many of us know well. When Solomon was confronted with two women who claimed to be the mother of a child, he decided their dispute would be uh, determined by ordering the child to be cut in half. And when he did that, it says that the true mother's compassion boiled over. This is the kind of experience, moms, this is the kind of experience that David had in this moment. 
for his brothers. And of course, Solomon recognized that when that mother's compassion boiled over and she relented custody, that he knew at that point that she was indeed the true mother and awarded the custody to her. That mercy, that compassion is what Jacob had prayed for this man to show to his sons, and that's what Joseph did. And then they enjoyed this incredible feast. They were merry, and they still didn't recognize who they were with. Well, Joseph's knowledge was power over his brothers, at least at point to test them, to prove uh, through these two visits that they made to Egypt. He was in a position of power as the governor, as the second in charge, but it was his knowledge that really set him apart. If you consider the fact that Joseph was second in power only to Pharaoh, and yet he had knowledge that Pharaoh didn't. He had been the one who uh, interpreted the dreams. He had been the one who stated the plan that should be put into effect to preserve Egypt and the surrounding uh, nations. It was without Joseph's knowledge, this God-given knowledge that he attributed to God, the nation of Egypt would have been devastated by the famine. And yet Joseph's knowledge over his brothers wasn't, he didn't exploit them. Um, They were filled with fear most of the time. I think they probably felt exploited later on. But instead, I would argue that Joseph had this spirit-guided plan for his family's restoration. In other words, Joseph was aware. He knew what he was doing. Bruce Waltke writes, The brothers constantly confront the ominous world of not knowing. Events seem to happen at random, and the dark side of their imagination senses a threat to their lives. The family confronts death, famine, execution for espionage, inability to trade, but all these dark events mysteriously are in wise and good hands. Their ignorance led to fear, all while Joseph knew and worked to save his family. And yet Joseph was just a man. He wasn't omniscient. Joseph has attested throughout his life that the revelation of the dreams and his knowledge, the source of all of that was God. Even Pharaoh recognized that the Spirit of God was upon Joseph. It isn't Joseph's knowledge that we celebrate. It is Joseph's God's knowledge, his omniscience that we celebrate. The omniscient God of the whole universe was working through his servant Joseph to accomplish his redemptive plan for his people. Psalm 147, 4 says, He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 139, 1, a passage that we hold dearly. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. And as Joseph's brothers learned, 1 John 3.20 tells us, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. And as Jesus stated in Revelation 22.13, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, our God knows all things. And He is omnipotent. He is powerful over all things. He is able to work through all things. He holds all things together. This means that everything that is happening in your life, everything that has happened, everything that is going on right now, everything that's going to happen tomorrow that you and I don't even know about, He knows full well. And like Joseph, who knew and recognized his brothers and worked to bring about their salvation from hunger, 
Our God knows and recognizes you as his child and is working to bring about your complete and true salvation. Joseph had limited knowledge and limited power. Our God knows everything and is almighty. You may at times think that you're in the dark, that threats are all around you, that there's no way out. You may even feel the harshness of his holy word convicting you of your sin. You may think you're not loved, that you're misunderstood or not valued. But when we look at Joseph's brothers, we realize that what we think and what we feel doesn't change reality. The whole time they were fearful and afraid, they need not be. And we shouldn't be afraid either. Because our God who knows everything is ruling and reigning. Hold on to Him. Hold on to Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who knows not only the beginning and the end, but everything in between, all that's going on. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows every detail of your life, including your deepest hurts and pains. He's not slow in His timing, but is working according to His perfect tempo to make all things new and to bring us safely home. Hold on to Him. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you, would you comfort our hearts that you are our high priest, that you see all, that you know all, and you have experienced what we have experienced. You're sympathetic. You know what it means to walk in these shoes. You've suffered. You've endured, and yet you remained sinless. So that we now, by your sufficient and complete work, may come before our holy God, washed clean by your blood. Would you comfort us with that knowledge as we face hard things, difficult things, incredible pain, incredible suffering, wrongdoing, being sinned against, sinning ourselves and the repercussions of that, living in a fallen world broken and wrecked. Lord, would you comfort us with the fact that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You know all things, and you are God Almighty El Shaddai, ruling and reigning. Everything is in your hands, and that you will bring us safely home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.